All right, let's try again and be serious. Okay. okay. Uh, this is a serious podcast? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not really. Not really. Especially since you got here. Yes. All right. I'm, I'm ruining it. Welcome to The Bean Pot. I'm your host, Adam Drinkwater. My guest today is Dr. Richard Scott Noakes, professor of medieval literature at Troy University and my very good friend. He is one of those people whose mind works in a gear that is much higher than most. His website is one of my go-tos for wisdom and deep thoughts on science fiction and fantasy culture. He always makes me think about the world differently and challenges my conceptions about pretty much everything. But most importantly, he just makes me laugh uncontrollably. In this interview, we discuss his Professor Awesome persona and how his intellectual outreach to connect his academic work to the general public led to much bigger things. He shares his experience with science, fantasy, comic, and gaming conventions. We touch on his latest project, Pop Medieval, a podcast he hosts along with a former student. That leads into the topic of his new book, From A to Zombie, and the philosophical problems of zombies. And about halfway through the interview, there's a special presentation from Dr. Noakes to me. Make sure to listen to the very end when he gives us his holiday viewing recommendations. You can find him at profawesome.com and on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram as rsnoakes. I'll provide links to these in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this interview and laugh as hard as I did. And now for something completely different, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes. Dr. Scott Noakes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here on the Bean Pot podcast and uh because i want to disrupt the <laughs> the serious tone that you want to have i want to i need to tell the story of i knew the story about this podcast i even heard the introductory episode before and somehow in my mind i had it <laughs> i had it there was not the bean pot but the pea pot as in p-e-a <laughs> and and i i and I called it the Peapot Podcast. And did you go uh, looking for it on iTunes as the Peapot? As the Peapot. And only after, and you start laughing, uh, you could say uproariously, upro- I'd say maniacally. Uh, the, <laughs> only afterwards, I realized that even if it had been the PEA Pot Podcast, it sure sounds a lot like the PEE Pot Podcast. <laughs> so. Well, regardless of the name, I may have to change it now. To the Peapot. <laughs> to the peapot. See, I'm gonna. I have to stop saying that because now I'm only gonna call it the peapot podcast. <laughs> well, it's, if this episode goes bad, you can differentiate between the good episodes, which are the bean pot episodes, and the bad ones, which are the peapot episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the great thing is there's probably only like ten people that are listening, so you're not gonna have to worry about it. Most well, of them are family, so it's. <laughs> <laughs> but they're contractually obligated to listen. They have to yeah. listen. So, uh, but that's interesting. You bring that up because um, as I've been thinking about what we would even talk about, mm-hmm. um, I realized I don't know where to start. There, there's so much that we could possibly talk about because mm-hmm. you have been in academia forever. 
the body of work that you have is extensive. Um, you've been on YouTube for 11 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I should, he, he told me 11 years. Yeah. Uh, you can fact check you. And I was shocked to find out it had been that long. You can fact check me. <laughs> I, be, I believe 2008 you. I, was your first post. When did YouTube launch? Um, it must've been 2008, the, the <laughs> I mean, day before. I, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I realized that you are, you're involved in everything. Um, yeah. You, yeah, you, so you have tried to do as much as I can and stay and, off the streets. And the thing that makes the most sense, obviously, is Professor Awesome. <laughs> so does that make sense to you, Professor Awesome? Does well, it speak to you? Uh, it explains a lot. <laughs> but if you could explain to my um, my listeners, right. where does Professor Awesome come from? Okay, so... Uh, if you go looking for me on the intertubes, you'll find me listed many places as Professor Awesome. And <clears throat> Professor Awesome comes from, we got to go back to the dark ages, back when blogging ruled the internet. Uh, this is a long time ago. And uh, I had a blog. I guess I still technically have it, but I have literally put nothing up there for oh, year, which, which years. Which blog is this? The Unlocked Word Horde blog. Oh, I didn't find that when I was looking. Oh, see, it's so secret. Uh, well, you would have found nothing very current on there. Uh, I, it's still connected somehow to my Twitter feed, which I thought they had, they had severed that, but I went looking for something and I found that first and realized that I get occasional updates, which are just retweets of my Twitter feed. <laughs> uh, but really it's been dead for oh, a long time, but there was a time when uh, I think I started blogging in 2000, I'm going to say four. Uh, and blogging really reached its height around 2008. And then it was killed off by other platforms. But there was a time when my blog got a lot of, I mean, it was, you know, I, somewhere in the range. I think at its height, it was somewhere in the range, of like 10,000 unique visitors a day, uh, something like that. So a lot of people went to it. And uh, I... You know, no one knew how to do blogging well, but the purpose of the blog was for for medieval, or, uh, it was to do intellectual outreach. I had a colleague who came to me uh, and he said, hey, I, he, I think every academic should be a public intellectual in some way. We should all be trying to bridge this gap. And I want to start a blog, but I don't want to do it alone. So let's start blogs together. Now he didn't want to start the same blog. He wanted us to kind of do it in tandem. Um, and he quit very quickly and then, and soured on it very quickly. And I, I think if we, we were to sort of ask him, he would say, uh, he would be very anti, uh, most kinds of public outreach actually now. Uh, but I, on the other hand was sort of pulled into it and I got, I, I got interested in it and, and it became really, uh, something I enjoyed, it really increased my productivity. Like if I blogged in the morning, then I could write more later on in the day. It was, I used to compare it to throat clearing. And no one kind of knew what they were doing. And so one thing I was trying to do was build a sense of community and I didn't know how to do that. So at one point I wanted to criticize another academic, but I didn't want to use their name. Now, now to be clear, I think this is a, a detestable person. Okay. Uh, I'm still not going to use this person's name. I think this is a detestable person. And what he was saying was wrong and bad. Um, 
But I wanted to make an argument against what he was saying and not turn it into an ad hominem attack, both because that would, I think, weaken my argument, and also it would uh, not be the tone I was going for. You know, I wanted the blog to be much more welcoming than that. So instead of using his name, I called him by a pseudonym. I called him Professor Awesome PhD, and it was a kind of insult against, and, and used him as a stand-in for a kind of person who would blog about subjects that they really didn't know anything about. They're not an expert in that. They're an expert in something else. And then when you challenge them and said, you don't know what you're talking about, they would say, well, I have a PhD. What do you have? Like, well, uh, not in that field. You don't. You don't know anything more than the average individual about that. Um, And so a couple times I wrote and would, it was a kind of insult to call someone else Professor Awesome PhD, but it was my way of saying, I'm going to write about someone saying they don't know what they're talking about and they're trading on their academic credentials when they don't know what they're talking about. Well, what started to happen was people would, because I had so much traffic um, coming in, I got a lot of emails and sometimes people would say, well, would you address this topic or would you address that topic? And often I didn't know anything about them. So what I started to say is I would begin writing something. I'd say like, look, uh, I don't, know anything i'm not an expert in this but since you asked i'll put on my professor awesome phd hat and i'll say whatever i'm going to say the idea being when i say i'm professor awesome i'm telling you i'm not particularly qualified but since you asked these are my ideas well after a while i started getting emails addressed to professor awesome And for a while, I would respond to them saying, look, don't call me that. That's actually an insult. Uh, I don't want to be called that. And for a while, I had a a stock paragraph response that would just copy and paste in the email to respond to the person saying, basically, please don't call me that. It's an insult. And so I was at Dragon Con, which I know you want to talk about later on. I was at Dragon Con, I don't know what year. I'm going to guess it was around 2013-ish, but I might be wrong about that. Um, And uh, I was walking down the street, and someone who I didn't know spotted me, and they flagged me down, they asked for my autograph, which was really weird to me, still is weird to me. Uh, And then people ask how much I charge for it. I just, I know Wait, I should can I charge know, for autographs. Yeah, I know. I, I know I should. I know I should turn this into a lucrative enterprise, but I'm just always so shocked when they ask me this. Uh, and uh, so I said, well, how do you want this made out? Thinking that they want, it was not the first time I'd asked for an autograph, but thinking they want it made out to, to, you know, to, to, to my best fan ever, Johnny, you know, that kind of thing. And they said from professor awesome to Johnny or whatever the guy's name was. And, uh, and I opened my mouth to start my spiel on, don't call me Professor Ross. I'm not diatribe. Right, right. And I just exhaled and just accepted it. All right, I'll be Professor Awesome. And in that moment, in you that became... moment, I became Professor Awesome. And so I started to really work to differentiate. So my full name is Richard Scott Noakes, which I, I use because there are a couple scholars with similar names. I don't want to confuse people. Um, but, I use Richard Scott Noakes for most things that are academic and Professor Awesome for things which are intended for public outreach. Um, so uh, if you're looking for something for me and it says, and, and it's signed Professor Richard Scott Noakes, then it's me. You then know, it's serious. Stroking my chin a lot and rumping and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, if you, uh, 
uh, ask me about, uh, if it says Professor Awesome, it's me talking about, you know, baby metal or... Just pontificating yes, about Yes, pontificating anything. about stuff I don't know anything about. Right? Excellent. Which is what I'm best at. So who were those early... Um, who's your early audience? Who were the people that were listening and so on reading? The, on the blog, it was... It started out as other academics and people who were vaguely interested in usually history or literature. Um, what's happened in time since then, really, is that over the years of trying to do public engagement, I've just met a lot of general nerds. And it's really come to be more general nerds. So I still get commentary. I would say now really a negligible part of my audience would be fellow academics. Uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, 5 10%. Uh, probably I, the percentage that read my things or listen to me or watch my casts are or that. Mostly it's either nerds I've met at nerd functions uh, or uh, I actually have a significant part. I'd say maybe a quarter of the mail I get to a third of the mail I get will be from people who are former students who like graduated 10 years ago and they, they want intellectual engagement and they just, I got my kids running around and I have time to read a complicated book, but I can watch this and I can, or listen to this and I can, you know, shake the, the, cobwebs out of my mind a scratch bit. that uh that itch exactly exactly right so when did it start to transition into public events and expert opinion on panels that's a good question i would have to look it up i'd say the first time i went beyond speaking to i don't remember the first time i was asked to speak at like a, a library book club like that that start happening basically the second I got my degree. Um, because, you know, um, I mean, immediately, immediately, oh, someone with a PhD is going to come talk about this book he is not an expert in. Uh, but they're not experts either, so we're, we're all doing well. Um, I went to, I guess I could have efforted this, I went to uh, a, a small science fiction conven fantasy convention in Indianapolis called In Conjunction. I was invited to speak to it and it was really, uh, <laughs> it was a general one, uh, but I, I, it was a wonderful crash course because I'm not a Harry Potter fan. Okay. They asked me to come, so this, this will come into play. <laughs> okay. Uh, they asked me to uh, speak about medieval magic and medicine, which is what my, or medieval magic and magic and medicine is was was my dissertation topic, and so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna come like in. Seems like a natural fit for right. Harry Potter. I'll rumpf a lot and uh, stroke my chin and wear tweed, and we'll be good to go, right? And uh, I, because it's in, it was in Indiana, where I'm, I'm I'm from there originally. I went to visit my parents for a few days in advance. And it's like two days before. Uh, I'm like leafing through the the panels. And I was like, man, there are a lot of, a lot of papers, a lot of presentations, a lot of just events around Harry Potter. And I started reading through it and I realized this year, the entire theme is Harry Potter. They want me to talk about medieval magic in the context of Harry Potter. <laughs> and at this point I had only read the first book and hadn't cared for it. I mean, it was all right. Were all the books out by this point? No, there it was, I don't know how, there were still a couple books that were yet to come out, but I, 
What is it? I don't know the final number. You would know I this, think right? It's seven, and the last four are like 700 pages each. Okay, yeah. So there was probably five of them were out, I would guess. Uh, and in two days, I plowed through the remaining books. So that I could <laughs> <laughs> and I got there, and boy, did they know a lot about Harry Potter. <laughs> and I knew nothing about Harry Potter, except for what I had managed to cram into my brain in 48 hours. Uh, I was fortunate that my father had all those books. So... <laughs> so. Yeah, so that was my crash course, but um, did that? Were you suddenly like enticed to go out and just start speaking, or did it? Was it gradual? It was gradual. I I wasn't really. So I, I'm not actually drawn to public events um, because I have every day I get up and I talk about the stuff I'm interested in, the stuff I want to talk to, to classes. And sometimes it can get repetitive, right? But, um, but the truth is I have a platform. And so if I'm like, if I'm on a panel and everyone else there is not in the position I'm in, they're loving the spotlight. And I'm just happening to happening to dwell in the spotlight at the moment as I'm, because what I'm really drawn to is the public engagement to meeting other people who are, who are interested in this stuff, to hearing what they have to say, to blowing their mind with something, and then seeing what they respond to that I would have never thought of for this. And basically, the public engagement is what is what draws me. Um, so, um, so yeah. So I, I started. I was intentional about trying to get public engagement, and really later on, that was what the blog was about. And then later on, once the Professor Awesome persona developed. Like that kind of, I'd start getting invitations to things and people to ask me to be on their pod- podcasts and, uh, you know, blurbs for books and that kind of thing. So you mentioned Dragon Con. Mm-hmm. Started off 1987. You were one of the first five people. <laughs> I was not one of the first five people. No, I was not. A, I did not even go in the, nine, nine, in the, ni- in the 19s. But you've been going for a long time. I've been going a while. I, I think I, I was looking up some numbers, and I think I saw where in eighty uh, in two thousand seven it was forty thousand, and in ten years in two thousand seventeen it was up to eighty thousand. Yeah, over I, the whole thing. Yeah, I don't know. So, so we should explain what DragonCon is. Yes, thank you. Oh, I should explain. I guess you should. <laughs> so, DragonCon is a, a uh, so there are basically three big. There are lots of of like little nerd conventions. Um, lots of them. There's a huge renaissance that's. In some ways, it's really great. In other ways, there's a lot of cutthroat competition between them, which is sad. But there are basically three big ones. The Probably the most famous one is Comic-Con, the San Diego Comic-Con. Um, and that's big because because it's in Anaheim. They can, they, 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 they premiere, uh, you know, movie trailers and things. They yeah. get a lot of celebrities going there. Big celebrity so, right. stars. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, Another one is Gen Con. Uh, Gen Con is in Indianapolis every year, not the one I spoke at about Harry Potter. Uh, and Gen Con is a is a, a gaming one. So if you're interested in any kind of game, gaming, tabletop gaming, video gaming, you know, whatever kind of gaming you're interested in, that's you know that's a, a really good one. And, and that one was already big. And then when there was this whole kind of tabletop gaming renaissance that happened in the last decade i mean gen con has gotten huge just mm-hmm. giant um, i've never been to it but a lot of my friends go to it and so uh, it's just doesn't fall well in my academic calendar and then there's dragon con dragon con is a lot more fan driven it's a more general science fiction fantasy uh one but yeah it's pretty huge it was big when i started going 
but it has exploded since then. And you're a regular panelist. Yeah, I am. Uh, so I first started going just as a, just as someone who wanted to go. Uh, and uh, about a decade ago, I guess, um, I found out that there was the Comics and Popular Arts Conference. And that is a, an academic conference that takes place within DragonCon. And I hooked up with the people there thinking I would present. And the next thing I knew, I was on the board. Uh, still a senior member on the board. <laughs> uh, and so we organize panels and I'm often a speaker. Um, and whenever you, the, the truth is like, if you go into old DragonCon uh, schedules and you see my name in there, um, that's usually half of what I do because the other half are so-and-so got sick. We need someone who's sort of an expert in this. <laughs> and I, I generally awesome. do, yes, I generally do one to two panels a day that I'm not scheduled to do <laughs> where I'm suddenly up there and thinking like, well, okay. Uh, so the, it has, at first it was really intimidating, uh, but it's forced me to, uh, to get a broader sense of nerd, of nerd culture as I call it. Right. So, um, so usually if I'm called in to talk about something, I can't, I have interesting things to, interesting to me, interesting to some people, but I have things to say that aren't just, uh, Hey, wasn't it cool when that happened? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, some, something beyond that. On your, on your blog, on your website, mm -hmm. professor awesome. Actually it's, yeah, it's uh, uh, prof, prof awesome.com. Awesome. Professor awesome was taken was by, <laughs> by some less by awesome <laughs> professor, I guess. <laughs> but but you cover you cover broad topics. Yeah. It, it's not narrow, no. um, and you have a large interest in lots of different things. Yes. Um, but your was your first love medieval English? That's hard to say. I mean, this will come as a shock uh, to the listener, and I'm sure to you as well. I was a little bit of a nerd growing up. I, I would say what somebody asked me, I wait, mean, what I've been, I've been playing uh role playing games regularly, like, like D and D there's one group. It's gone through many changes. I think my, myself and one other guy are the only two people who are, who are still together who are in the original group. We've been playing regularly since 1981. Oh my <laughs> was that when it was first printed? Like the very first <laughs> Gary Gygax came and passed on the head and said, here, here, have these funky dice, kids. Have fun. I'll see you in a few decades. Uh, so I've always been that way. But when I, basically what happened was I, but I, that was always just a thing I did for fun. And mm. um, for complicated reasons that are disconnected from this, I went, ended up going abroad after I got out of, uh, out of uh, undergrad. And I really wanted, and I really, I was traveling around, every year would live in a different country, and was teaching English or setting up American studies programs or that kind of thing. I really loved that lifestyle. And, um, the jet setting lifestyle it, style of a yeah, professor. Yeah. Yes. That was, that was what it was. <laughs> uh, and, uh, it was more of, uh, the backpacking. It was more like a backpacking around and staying in youth hostel style, but, uh, <laughs> but I had regular jobs. It wasn't quite, quite like that. Uh, two t-shirts and one pair of underwear, something like that. Perfect. <laughs> uh, and, uh, we, anyway, so, I, I went to grad school thinking I was going to do American lit and, um, because I thought that would be really saleable. I loved that lifestyle and I loved doing it. And, um, 
you know, if I, if I had not had kids, that's what I'd be doing today. You know, uh, ultimately it ended up not being compatible with having a family, you know, uh, uprooting every year and going to live in another country where you don't speak the language, you don't know anything. Buying a toothbrush is a major adventure. Uh, so, uh, so I went to grad school and I started off in my master's program doing American lit and for complicated reasons, which, uh, aren't, aren't worth getting into. Um, I realized I wasn't gonna be able to do American lit. Like that wasn't going to function for me. Um, the, the main one being that, I mean, Marxist, Marxist critique is basically all we were doing. And I just, I had one of the places I'd lived was in the former Soviet Union. And that was not a thing I could personally justify ethically. I couldn't, I couldn't assent to this thing that I had seen such terrible things with. Uh, so I was essentially going to leave grad school. And um, the, the uh, medievalists at, at my grad schools, she said to me, you know, you've taken almost as many classes in medieval lit as American. Why don't you switch to medieval? You don't have to do Marxist because it's, pre-capitalist literature. And I had not realized I was taking so many medieval lit courses. So I didn't think it was my first love, but I had really taken almost the, as many classes. And uh, it ended up being, I think when I counted, I literally taken one fewer classes in medieval lit than hmm. I had from, from American. I, I might be wrong about that, but that's what my memory. Was there one that stood out as your favorite? No, there's one in my undergrad that I think took me down the path. When I was a freshman, uh, my advisor was putting together an old English class. She was going to teach old English. And she, I guess, strong-armed me into the class. She just advised me to go in the class. I was a freshman. I didn't know any better. <laughs> I show up in the class. There are literally only two full-time students in the class, me and a senior and everyone else are, is this group of little old ladies from Indianapolis who had decided they wanted to learn old English. And uh, I'm assuming they're all dead now and won't be offended by me calling them a bunch of little old ladies. Uh, and so, like, we would come to class every, you know, every class meeting. And the other student and I, we are just, like, struggling to keep up. I mean, we are working our tails off. And these other women, like, this is all they did, Right. So they're all like crocheting old English. Yeah, kind of like they had, they'd done all the reading and all the recommended reading and they had, they had interesting questions and I was just trying to figure out the basics. But in the end of that, I actually learned a little bit, uh, shockingly, uh, despite my lack of natural ability. (laughs) And I think that sort of gave me from the beginning. So when I went to grad school and I started taking classes, I ended up being drawn to those, I think because of that other experience that, Mm. that I'd had before. So when, when we talk about the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. just, just for context, it's a broad yes. range. Like yes. when you say Middle Ages, there's the early, there's yeah. the, the late, what was it, middle, and then yeah. late. Yeah, and, and really even dividing up like that, I mean, if we only confine it to Europe, mm-hmm. if, even if we only confine it to Europe, even those, like what that means in Eastern Europe versus what that means in Spain, which sometimes had Moorish occupation, sometimes didn't, you know, are, are crazy different things. Uh, so, you know, sometimes we talk about early, early and late Middle Ages. Which is basically from the 5th century to like the 17th century. Is that right? Yeah, basically from the fall of the Roman Empire until, um, I, I usually 
I, I usually pick either for literature, I say the development of the printing press and sort of broadly more culturally 40, which happened in the 1450s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then broadly more culturally the discovery of the new world in 1492. And so those, those two things really. So where, what is the time period that you really carve out as like the one that you're drawn to? Well, the one that I'm really an expert in is the uh, Anglo-Saxon period. Uh, and so the language that they spoke, we usually call Old English. And so that would be, they. we usually say they arrive at 449. The literature doesn't really begin for another century and a half after that uh, for reasons that are complicated and not important. Uh, and then that runs until... Uh, 1066 with the Norman invasion when the Normans come and take over and uh, uh, everything changes. And the Normans are basically French Vikings, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. Right. And so they take over England and they are speaking French mm-hmm. with a little tinge of uh, Norse in there. Right. And, Something like that. And it begins to change the English language altogether. Yeah, that's right. So... I mean, you only have maybe, you know, maybe 2% at the most of the people are speaking French. Everyone else continues to speak English. It's most, but, mostly but the, people, the upper class. The upper class, all the laws are printed in French and only in French. Contracts are only binding if they're in French. Mm-hmm. You know, um, all court proceedings are only in French. Like, it's, it, is a, it is a long time. It is not... Uh, you start to see real changes in the... 14th century uh, really is when changes start to happen. So, you know, so you're going several centuries where, where if you want to do anything official, if you want to do anything beyond being a dirt farmer, you got to speak French. And so it's not that everyone speaks, comes to speak French. It's that French starts to affect English as a language. And so English changes mightily in that time. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. that it's not this, that it's the stories of this time period that drew you in. Yeah, I think so. And I just, um, so I teach historical linguistics, but like linguistics is not my subspe is not really my, my true specialty. Um, and so I, I think, I think I construct a lot of things around stories. Mm -hmm. So, I guess I would argue that stories are what draws me into any time period. And okay. the particular of the particular things about the medieval is that um, it's close enough to us that with just a little training, you can recognize what's going on. Um, but it's far enough away that we can see it, I think, a little bit more objectively. And for me, it allows me to look, this is one of the reasons I think public outreach becomes so natural. The more that I, not just the more I do it, but the more I learn about medieval literature and the medieval world, I can sort of see our world that we live in through this other, this completely different lens. So do you find yourself trying to convey that lens to your students yeah, all the and time. to lay people that aren't your students. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. So, so there's a couple of things that I do when I'm doing public outreach. I usually think that there are two approaches. Uh, one is I take a medieval thing and I show someone why it matters in their lives. 
Um, the other thing that I do is I take contemporary things and I show people how there's a broader context to that thing. Mm. Um, and the nice thing about that is it, it seems like I don't have to shoehorn anything because the middle ages is so broad. You know, I, I end up doing so much reading about so many different things. 99% of them, I have nothing important to say about. <laughs> so when I do bring up something about it, it sounds like, Oh, he knows a lot about this, but it just happens to be something which, uh, I caught a spark on it. And you've recently started an initiative with a former student, which is a podcast called mm -hmm. pop medieval. Yes. And that seems like a natural fit. Um, of what you've been doing, mm -hmm. but now you're taking it to a medium that you haven't been on before. Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of net casting and I started doing net casting kind of video net casting. I was about to say what I started doing it for, but maybe I'm wrong because you, <laughs> you found stuff 11 years old or no, 2011, 2008 is when it was your first video you posted. Wow. Okay. So, um, do you remember what it was? I don't. Oh, okay. You, you got I, me on that. I know one. I have an early one where I did a project and I had to, I made my son speak old English on one of them. That was like the fifth video, wow, maybe yeah. down. Okay, so I use so I was using it for class. Okay, I was I was using it for class, uh, and later on when we started putting more and more, um, I started delivering more and more online courses uh, with Troy University. I, for complicated reasons, I started hosting my videos outside of the university. Um, I used to do, oh, what was the name of it? There was a, a, a platform that was just supposed to be its own TV channel. It's gone now. I can't, I I can't remember. remember the name of it. Uh, so a lot of them, if you look like, it appears like suddenly I did a whole bunch of material on YouTube with weird titles that are junky looking all in one day. It's because this platform was dying. And so... Uh, I want to say bit TV, but that might be wrong. Something, okay. something like that. Um, I'm going to assume someone, right. someone, someone's screaming at their, <laughs> at their phone right now. Someone just threw their phone right. across how, the room. How dare he? I had all my money invested in that. <laughs> uh, anyway, whatever it was. Uh, and I moved everything over to YouTube at that time. So, um, I guess I'd already been doing YouTube for a while as well. So I started off with class stuff. So I, I do a lot of video visual stuff. Um, and things where I feel like I need to make a connection. So I find that if I'm like looking at the person, they feel better about it. But um, I want to do more long form stuff. And I don't know about other people. I just don't have time to sit there and watch a 45 minute video. But I listen to hours of podcasts every day. Uh, I do. So when um, uh, Nina... Uh, who's the co-host, she came to me and she and I had already worked on some other projects before in the past. Uh, she came to me and said, I want to do a podcast. I want to call it Pop Medieval. I want to focus on Middle Ages and popular culture. All right. So, um, and so I've basically moved most of my medieval, like when I say new things about the Middle Ages that are developed, that are have any pop culture relevance, I'm, I'm, I've moved them over there. There are a few things which either are not enough to be developed or are too visual. Uh, so like I recently wrote a book, it's not on print yet, so don't get excited, about uh, Beowulf comic book adaptations. Uh, and um, is it a critique? It's a history and critique of it, yeah. Uh, starting with uh, 
Well, really starting with the 1970s, uh, DC Comics had a series and then moving forward to some real recent ones. Anyway, uh, but that's very visual. So mm-hmm. I'll, we'll probably never talk about that on the podcast, except maybe as a plugging it or recommending it, right? Um, so there are some things that are visual like that. Uh, but except for that, um, you know, I'm, if Pop Medieval disappears because we get sick of it or because we... Uh, morphs into something different or, or whatever happens, you know, I'll continue to do public outreach. It's just, now it's just uh, what I see as a kind of uh, inextricable part of being a professor. Like I, I can get up and talk to, you know, a couple hundred students a year in my classes um, for credit for them and for pay for me. But I feel like, you know, between Pell Grants and, for the students and, uh, you know, uh, the state government paying for the school, partly, I mean, a very small percentage, but some of it, there's obviously there's a public interest in learning stuff. And uh, so I'm just trying to fill that public interest. Well, I've enjoyed the podcast. Thank you. I think there's, at this point, there's been five episodes that have been released. Uh Uh, I've enjoyed every one of them. I've learned something in every episode. The the one that spoke to me the most was <laughs> was the uh, the zombies episode. Um, I have a love for zombies. Yes, I'm I'm going to confess that to the interwebs. I don't know what it is. Is it a romantic love for zombies? It, it is a deep passion for zombie zombies of all kinds. Mm. And i i was I was um, watching a YouTube post that you made mm-hmm. about zombies. Uh, after I had read your book about zombies, mm-hmm. uh, but before I had listened to the episode about zombies. So there's a lot of zombies coming <laughs> from you. Yes. Uh, but it, it, the one question that came to mind was, what is a zombie? Mm-hmm. And it seems like a very simple answer, but you made it much broader than I could have imagined on my own. Tell me what you think a zombie is. So before I tell you that, I have to point out, so my, my fiction book, From A to Zombie, we had a blurb contest. <laughs> <laughs> and the way the blurb contest worked was, if you, is that we, we first published it uh, in EPUB form, and we were waiting to do the, uh, the print form. Uh, probably the print form will not be available. In fact, I seriously doubt it will be available when this episode releases immediately. But if you're listening to this in the future, it might be out there. So look for it if you want the print version. Um, and uh, we wanted blurbs for the, for the dust jacket. And I got a couple of, you know, other authors and scholars of things to, to write about them. But I kind of want to do something. If I'm doing public outreach, I might as well, you know, do, do something more like that. And so I had this blurb contest. And... Uh, people could pr- pr- uh, submit blurbs and then they'd be anonymized so, no, so they wouldn't know who they were and the publishers would then go and they'd pick what they wanted. And they did. And your blurb won an honorable mention. That's amazing. Right. In- and because of that, not only will your blurb be included in the print version of the book, but you will receive this delightful Oh my refrigerator gosh. magnet cover of the book. This right. is amazing. Yes, this it is, is. I mean, it's it's the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the best gift I've gotten all day, and uh, it's the only gift I've gotten all day. Yeah. But 
Maybe, it, maybe for the rest of the day, even it, if you <laughs> if you stay here until midnight. Uh, totally unexpected. When when you told me that I had won it, um, <laughs> or, or or that I got the honorable right. honorable mention, um, I thought it was a joke because when when I when I wrote the blurb, mm-hmm. I wasn't even thinking of it as a submission. Mm-hmm. I was just having fun. It was <laughs> it was such a good book, and I enjoyed it so much. I just had fun putting it out there. I never thought it would even be considered. So this is a huge honor. You, I'm you've won without even being considered. This is this is also the first gift I've gotten from a guest. So it, well, it, it needs has to be, triple triple honor. It needs to be a tradition. I think. I think you should solicit cash gifts from your guests uh, in the future. <laughs> I will say, someone told me today. Someone told me that she has won, but she has her. Uh, her bills she puts up there and she said she started to hate it because of the bills. So only put pleasant things. Okay. Uh, That's a good piece of advice. I'm going to put things that make me happy, like my kids' artwork and right. other prizes. Signed autographs from Sign- me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. This is a huge honor. I'm, uh, I don't think I've ever, I've never won a book blurb before. <laughs> so this is the only book that I will probably ever be considered for. Well, now that, now that we've endowed you with this amazing gift, I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> so what was it? I can't either. We, uh, zombies. What, what are they? Um, oh but, yeah. But you did plug your book. So I do, I do want to back up for a second and say the book is from A to zombie. Yes. From A to zombie. A right. to zombie. So, and um, it's a, it's a fiction book. The, and it's not under my name. It's under professor. Awesome. PhD is the author, not, so not me. Now that we've clarified that for yes. everyone and we're back on track. Yes. Give me, what is a zombie to you? So in the book, in, in the book, a zombie is kind of very similar to a traditional zombie, dead people who've come back. Right. Um, but I actually think a zombie is more about the idea of a community acting mindlessly. And the reason I say that is you can conceive of a zombie that is a one-off zombie and there have been, you know, different treatments of it. But by and large, when we present zombies, whether in movies or books or whatever, we're talking about an apocalyptic situation, right? A whole community. Whereas like ghosts and vampires and other kind of similar dead who return are usually one-offs. There aren't a lot of ghost apocalypse stories uh there was that one zombie or a vampire apocalypse movie about like they drank everybody's i can't remember the name of the movie they do drink blood but there's there's an ecological crisis because they've they've drank they've vampired too many people and uh anyway it was it was interesting movie but does Ethan Hawke was in it, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I'm drawing a blank. I could pull it up on IMDb, yeah. I'm sure. But yes. Anyway, so... Someone's but, Googling but, but, right, it right but, now. But, right. But, but normally, that's a kind of... They're one-off. They're individuals. Whereas we're talking about zombies, we're talking about um, a community that returns. Whether it's a small community or a global community, a community that returns. And, um, and they're in some way behaving mindlessly. It's not... It's not an, it's different than say like an alien invasion because an alien invasion, they're invading us for whatever their reasons are. Maybe we understand them. Maybe we don't. Uh, Maybe they are so alien we can't get them at all, but it doesn't matter because they're outsiders with zombies. 
it's our family, it's our friends, but now they've turned on us. They're behaving in a way that they shouldn't behave. And it's not just one. There might be the person, like even when there's a zombie story that's personal, where like, you know, someone is locked in a house with their family member who is slowly turning and they know they're gonna have to kill them, you know, blah, 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 that kind of thing. Even that is, that's standing for a more broad uh, thing that's happening. So I would argue things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a kind of zombie, even though those are technically aliens, is a, it, they transform the community. It's a kind of zombie uh, story. Um, I, think there are, I think there are other iterations of this having to do with mind control and things. But this is why like fast zombies, slow zombies, uh, you know, intelligent zombies, dumb zombies, to me, the important part is it's a community that's turned that's mindlessly turned back on itself, and it, it's not enough. It's not a civil war. It's not that they the zombies have reason to not like you anymore. No, it's people are behaving outside of the way they normally would. The person who's turned on you and is trying to kill you is a person who not only would have never harmed you, but would but might have just given their lives their life for you, you know, moments before. The whole structure of the community mm-hmm. is in danger. Yes. And, and, and that's, I think, some of the draw for me is when I talk about zombies and what I like about them, a lot of times I'll say the zombie apocalypse or I'm getting mm-hmm. ready for the zombie apocalypse. Right. And I don't think it was until recently that I, after those things I've already mentioned that you've done, that I realized that I, I'm drawn to the apocalypse part yeah. of the of the zombification Mm -hmm. of whatever community it is. Uh, It's that fear of everything that I know could suddenly be taken away from me and not only be taken away, but be hijacked Mm -hmm. by some other force. Yes. And turned, and turned on you and turned against you and everyone you care about. Right. Were those types of ideas in your head before you wrote the book or did you come to that conclusion after you wrote the book? Um, the book actually comes out of more, so to, it's going to sound very high-minded. The book is very silly and funny, and, and, it was, and it's, designed to be, it's designed to be funny. Uh, it, uh, so, if anyone, so it's going to sound like I spend my time you know, with my tweed, tweed jacket with the leather, leather patches. As soon as I started reading it, yeah. I could hear your humor in it right away, <laughs> and I was immediately drawn in. Everyone, I was like, where is this going? I can't wait to see. Everyone who knows me who has read it has said they can only hear it in my voice. Uh, so <laughs> That is a danger. Yes, that is a problem. <laughs> so, the, uh, so it actually started off with philosophical problems. Um, but the real way it started was I was uh, in a Mexican restaurant with a couple friends. Their hat names happened to be Jeff and Matt, who are the two main characters <laughs> main here. Main characters. Right? Okay. And... Uh, and I forget, you know, it's one of these, I can't say, remember who said what or how it came to be. Uh, it was a lot of back and forth in the conversation, but I, one of them said, uh, one of them said, uh, I wonder if since a ghost is spirit and a zombie is just the body, if you could be a ghost and a zombie at the same time. And that was kind of what began it with me because it started with this question about like, in essence, what part about identity, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, sort of in Christian philosophy, an idea about like the body, the body soul connection, 
um, the idea of so in 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 Christian thought, one idea is uh, there's sometimes a vehicular idea, uh, you know, like where um, C.S. Lewis famously said, uh, "We are you, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body." Mm-hmm. Um, whereas there are other intellectual traditions that would really point to the idea that. Christianity is not about the figurative or the spiritual resurrection, but about the physical resurrection, physical resurrection of Jesus, physical resurrection of Lazarus, physical resurrection of everyone in the end. Uh, And that the body is closely connected so that when in Christianity, when Jesus is crucified uh, and he comes back, he's still got like the wounds from his crucifixion. Um, Literally heard someone today talk about a suicide attempt. and, And she said, uh, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but basically what she said was she she had sort of converted to Christianity and her idea, and she said, like, now I know that my scars will never be gone. They'll mm. always be on me, but they will be glorified, you know? And so in a lot of ways, it had to do with, it had to do with two things. One is the connection between the body and the spirit. Um, and the other one had to do with uh, choice. Um, it's a major part of the book that people choose whether they go to heaven or hell. And that comes from uh, this idea, which is uh, when I first started, I thought it was crazy that essentially people choose hell that, you know, we can say, we could talk about God sending people to hell, but people choose hell. And I thought that is stupid. That is crazy. Like no one would choose hell. And uh, like most of the ideas that have been most important to me, they're the ones that I first thought, it was the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And then over time I realized actually there might be a lot of truth or all truth to that. And so I was playing with that idea. And so a lot of this, a lot of this has to do with choice. And so uh, one of the major themes in the book is people who think that they have a choice, but they don't people who have a choice, but think that they don't and people who gain power over other people by exercising. Um, by causing that person to think that they're choosing a kind submission to them in some way. Uh, so a lot of it is not, I mean, there obviously all of it ends up being religious in some way, but a lot of it has to do more with kind of the way that we interact socially, hmm. where a lot of times when we want power over someone else, we get them to submit to us and they think they're doing it. They think they're doing what they're doing of their free choice. But in fact, they're just doing it because we have exercised our will over them and about how that can be very, very evil. And we should be careful not to not just fall into that for our, ourselves to be victimized, but also not to do it because that, that would be bad. So there's all these, it, I mean, it sounds like if no one's read the book, it's going to sound like I spend long, long periods of time on philosophical you know, uh, comments. Um, I think I've taken out every, almost every bit of f- straight-up philosophy. There's one point where the big bad gives a uh, gives a kind of a manifesto mm-hmm. and the first version of it the characters refute her and then i changed it so that they just said uh i, I re- removed their refutation and made it much more simple they're basically their answer not to get into spoilers their answer is just like yes but this is what's happening because of it. It's a very simple kind of like this evil is happening because of what you're saying. You can justify it all you want. 
but there's this evil thing. And so rather than giving the, what I think are very robust and well, uh, uh, and well considered philosophical objections to the big bad's position, um, I kind of am arguing from experience that even if you don't know by remove by by removing it in the final draft that went out, I'm kind of arguing, even if you don't really know how to say that something is bad, you often just know it's bad already. Mm-hmm. Like you might not know why, you just know it is. Um, and so, um, and so I try to get at that idea too. Do you think culturally we're living in like a a a post traditional zombie age where they're called at least in western culture yeah like the society has been hijacked almost zombie zombified um by a breaking down of traditional um structures well traditional structures as far as traditional traditional western structures go well, I would say basically all traditional structures are breaking down. Um, I mean, the, the, nowadays, the, the shorthand is bowling leagues, mm. right? That, that bowling leagues don't seem like much. Uh, they seem kind of square. Uh, as square as using the word square the way I just <laughs> used it. <laughs> uh, but, the first person in five years to use it. Yeah, but, you know, uh, bowling leagues were a, if you're a dude, actually a lot of mixed couple bowling leagues with the height of it, you know, like you would go out and you'd spend time with other adults and you'd end up mixing with people in the community that weren't curated. And so I actually don't think it's just Western. I mean, I think this is a big problem that we have generally that I think there's a problem of curation where, I mean, this is a whole other side topic, but um, where we, because we live so much of our time online, what we end up doing is we curate our content quite innocently and we train AIs to curate our content quite innocently. But what ends up happening is they, they curate out other voices and we become very lonely. And so I think it's very easy for, so in some, if you look at certain kinds of zombie genre things from before, you'll see it's often not about the society breaking down, but it's often about the traditional structures being turned against you. Mm. So you might think uh, the shopping mall in, shoot, is that Dawn of the Dead? I think it's Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead? I think yeah. it's Dawn of the Dead. Uh, one, one of those Romero movies, mm-hmm. like the shopping mall, the mm-hmm. idea of commercialism, that commercial that commercialism is sort of turned us into zombies and sort of turned us against, right. right. Um, or if you look at the many iterations of invasion of the body snatchers, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've got people using, it's not people running around like crazy people, right? It's people using, it turns out that that cop is already turned or mm-hmm. it turns out that that, uh, you know, that that government official is already turned. Um, and so I think there's no reason that a destruction of, the destruction of certain, there's a certain kind of zombie apocalypse where actually those structures are strengthened, just turned against us, right? They turned against their community. But I think now, because we see these traditional structures collapsing, um, 
I think because we see these traditional constru- uh, structures collapsing, we turn back to that, or we we think about those structures as the ones that would save us if they still existed. Mm. Uh, and so most zombie things I see nowadays tend to be about that, about the breakdown of of these things, because that's what we're experiencing more broadly. Um, you know, people don't have the kind of social cohesion that they had. Um, in the past, and so that's why that's where the threat has moved to. If you, if you look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, which has a threat of a zombie apocalypse, there's a, it depends on how it's translated, and and, and uh, it comes a great shock to you that Professor Awesome doesn't have <laughs> a, a great knowledge of ancient Sumerian. Uh, well, wait, now the um, Gilgamesh is is uh, that's our oldest, our oldest surviving story. Okay, yeah. um, in. In writing. In writing. Right. Um, I mean, there are some things we think are older, but we don't have them written Mm -hmm. down before then. Uh, Anyway, um, there's a threat. The goddess Ishtar threatens zombie apocalypse. And in in one kind of translation, the threat is that the dead will not, not that the dead are going to rise and eat the living, but the dead will rise and eat all the food. And so when you think about it, what's the threat in this newly post-agrarian society like Uruk? Famine. Like, that's the thing that you fear. That's the thing that, like, what happens when your neighbors who are supposed to be helping you, who are the people living in the city, they're eating all the food and there's nothing left for you, right? Mm. We would never, that, that apocalypse wouldn't make sense to us today. So instead, what we see is they destroy the, our existing social structures mm-hmm. and leave us without a way to get food, maybe still. Mm. Uh, now we're scrounging for, for food out of supermarkets, right? Rather than... Uh, you know, growing our own fields. I mean, think of The Walking Dead, which I confess I haven't probably watched an episode in five years. So (laughs) if I'm saying things which are not true, forgive me. But by now it's been years. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't have fields of, why aren't they growing their own crops or something? I mean, they're still all scrounging for, uh, maybe they are now. No, I mean, that is is one of the... um, you are my Robert Kirkman of, of, uh, <laughs> of, of zombies. Just like uh, Robert Kirkman, I will quit suddenly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, I've read, I've read, uh, I don't know. I think I'm on like the 25th or something, um, book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even in the television show, what you see is the structure of society breaks down. Yeah. They struggle for a while to, um, get their numbers together and to just survive, mm-hmm. but they do spend their time trying to rebuild their, um, their social norms. Right. Uh, they try it in an old prison. They try mm-hmm. it in a small town. They mm-hmm. try it, uh, in different, um, communities that are working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they do form some sort of semblance of, um, of, of that community structure, yeah. but they're constantly being attacked by others who are trying to tear down that structure again. Yes. It's always under threat. And, and what I would point out is instead of trying to set up, so as I often tell people, if a zombie apocalypse ever really happened, don't go running to the government. Don't go running to, to loot the local hardware store. Come see me. Because I know how to run a society (laughs) in a pre-modern way. And while you guys are all scrounging for the last six bullets in the county, my knights are going to run up on our armor that we made in the (laughs) pit that we have uh, used to forge out of uh, the scrap metal that we've we've managed to get 
because we won't have time to build mines. And my <laughs> knights will come up and they'll chop your head off. And uh, you can enjoy the last six bullets that you're all fighting over. Is your next book going to be a zombie survival book? It will not be. My <laughs> next book is called The Watch of Traxxas. And it is about a world in which it's an, uh, in which 20 years ago, um, a fantasy world collided with New York City. And New York is the only place in which these two worlds intersect uh and uh and it happens 20 years later so it's kind of like post this thing uh the world is 99 percent the same as it is except in new york where it's different uh and uh when you say fantasy land are we talking like disney world fantasy no we're talking like elves dwarves oh, okay works that kind of thing okay like D fantasy world just in new york yeah the idea is that you can't the basic premise is if you live in, or if you're a human, like you are, you cannot go into the fantasy world. Mm. You can't even see it. If you are from this fantasy world, it's called Threa in the current, in the current version. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, you can't see earth. You can only go into what we call New York. They, they renamed the city Traxxas. Uh, so Traxxas is what we call New York. Um, you can't pass through, but in New York, both, kinds of people can go and they can interact. Uh, and so New York has a really weird culture that's developed because of this. And then the, you mean in real life, but then yes. Okay. And then, uh, in, in this particular iteration, um, one of the curious things is that there are no humans in the other world. The humans can crossbreed with, uh, these other races which cannot crossbreed with one another. And so now uh, the first children of these are grown, have grown are now just finally starting to grow into adulthood. And they, they don't have any superpowers except for one, which is they can pass into either world. Uh, and uh, this makes them rife for exploitation and other sorts of things. So what's your time frame on that book? Uh, I'm really close to being done with the first draft so close that I'm finding myself thinking more and more about revisions when I'm not done with the existing draft. Uh, so I'm thinking I'm going to guess it's going to be available in a year, uh, or six, six months to a year. It depends on how quick the revisions go. I also have a, a scholar coming in from China to work with me for a year on a, on academic stuff and. This is a great opportunity, so I'm going to try to clear my plate of as many of these other things as possible. If I don't get it done before she comes, it'll all get delayed some more, and I don't want to delay it much more if I can avoid it. Do you have any recommendations for reading, watching, um, educating ourselves on something interesting we may not know about? There's this great new podcast called The Peapot. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend it if yes. you can find it. Um. <clears throat> Gosh, I don't know. I, mostly if, I, if I'm interested in something, you can find me writing about it on Prof Awesome or, or a netcast about it. Um, I guess lately what I've been looking at are... Um, I spent a lot of time lately not looking at things that... Look at, I've been looking at a lot of academic things I haven't had an interest in uh, until recently but i think what i'm getting most interested in now 
is this rise of the uh, con, the nerd con. Mm. Um, I don't have any pop culture things except to go to a con, you know, which I go to the... In, uh, nowadays, I don't go if I'm not invited. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to one I wasn't invited to recently, and it was it was refreshing to go as a guest uh, or as a regular attender. But at the end, I, I at the end I felt like did I just waste my time? How dare I not <laughs> get some professional development out of this? Not uh, one signature right. signed, but yeah, I, no autographs. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really, you know, I'm interested in the way you know, we were talking about how. Um, traditional structures have broken down and I can see people desperately trying to put them together Mm. And this rise of the con, I Mm. think is a way of people looking at online communities and being like, maybe this can be a community. Maybe Mm. we can get together in in physical space and this kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of where my mind has been, uh, you know, lately. Um, I, I guess, uh, what do you, what do you think this is going to be available? What are you thinking? Um, I'm hoping uh, the week of Thanksgiving. So, but at the very latest, in the next couple of weeks. Okay, let me uh, let me give a Christmas movie recommendation. Perfect. A movie that no one likes but me. <laughs> it is. We're going to test that theory. Uh, I'm pretty confident I'm going to do okay on this one. <laughs> it's called One Magic Christmas. It's a live action Disney film from the very early '80s, starring Harry Dean Stanton. And uh, Mary Steenburgen, I think, is the female lead. And it is a it is set in a uh, it is very gray. It is very it feels like the seventies. It's right at that very end of the seventies, very beginning of the early eighties. It is a, a very clear depiction of what life was like at that moment. And um, it's about a family. They live in their um, they live in their how their their company owned house but the father's lost his job and they get they don't do the trope of the evil uh you know the evil employer is going to throw him out before christmas but because the evil employer is not going to throw him out before christmas he's going to throw him out right after christmas and so they all and so they have this sense of desperation and pending doom yeah impending doom and it actually doesn't help their christmas at all <laughs> Uh, and there's a conflict over the children don't understand what's going on. The parents have serious money problems. Um, so why would I want to watch this before Christmas? Uh, it is, it is one of my, it is one of my favorite depictions of Santa Claus. Okay. He is a character in it. Um, eventually he comes in near the very end. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> it's called ah. One Magic Christmas, and everybody was like, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Santa Claus appeared. Who could have expected? Um, it's a really weird and quirky version. Uh, I really enjoy I enjoy it on its own merits, and I like the movie, uh, but I think part of what I like about it is just how bleak it is uh, in getting to One Magic. They are not afraid to... They're not afraid to do things in that that you are not supposed to do in live action Disney films. Okay. I will say that. They just pile it on. Hey, there, there, there is one plot point, which I will not, uh, which I will not reveal in case your listeners watch this one magic Christmas where, um, I actually, I actually, I, I remember I saw it in the theaters, uh, back in the, I guess, early eighties 
or uh, and uh, when I went back and was able to watch it on video, I thought, wait, I thought this was a live action Disney film. And I went and looked, and it was, and I couldn't believe that they had this thing in it, which I will just leave it there. Okay. Uh, but One Magic Christmas is the bleak, bleak Christmas film that I will defend to the death. <laughs> it's, it's like the Tim Burton of Disney films. It's less weird than that. No, it's okay. more bleak. It's <laughs> okay. more, okay. it's more, uh, uh, you know, even when things go well, they go badly and they don't even, <laughs> uh, even though there is magic in it, mostly the bad things that happen are just legitimately things that could happen to anyone. Uh, you know, it's not the bad thing that happens. Isn't Santa's sleigh crashes into your house or the kind of thing that you'd have in most movies. Uh, Bad things are like Santa's mom, and dad, mom and dad lose their job, you know, or, you know, this kind of thing. So, okay. Right. I will take your recommendation to heart mm, yeah. and, and I will watch it if I can find it. You, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if it's available. <laughs> I'm sure iTunes has it or Amazon. Some, or someone. Someone has it. Right. It can be purchased. This has been enjoyable. Thank you. A um, couple of things I wanted to say before we go. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that I want you to write my obituary. You're the only person that's allowed to write it because... Because I'm the one who will kill you? <laughs> <laughs> because your narration of my life story will be the most interesting thing that's ever written about me. <laughs> and uh, also, when I look back on my life, um, maybe moments after being bitten by a zombie, as I'm turning, my, my one regret will be that we haven't spent more time together. Because uh, I always enjoy uh, these times. So I'm, I'm crying. Here's a tissue. I'm crying. You can, you can <laughs> wipe this off. Uh, so thank you so much. I enjoyed it. This was the best. Thanks for having me. All right. So there it is. The Professor Awesome episode. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Noakes as much as I did. If you haven't listened to my first two episodes... Now's a great time to go back to the beginning. If you're ready for more interviews, I'm happy to tell you they are on the way. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss what's coming next. And while you're at it, please rate the show with five glorious stars and give me your best glowing review. Also, please visit my Patreon account to see how you can help support future episodes. Right now, you can get a special limited time offer if you sign up for at least the minimum tier by December 20th. All patrons starting with the minimum tier get a free The Beanpot sticker, and your name will be listed on the very next podcast episode that I release. It's a special offer that will only be available for the second tier or higher after the 20th, so don't wait. Also, don't forget to follow me on all the social media things. You can find links to them in the show notes and at adamdrinkwater.com. This show was produced, recorded, and edited by me. All music is by the very talented and gracious Lenny Trawick. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll come back. Mm